Welcome to On the Edge with April Mahoney Brains. Here, this is the spot. Where the conversation is pointed, the guests are sharp, and the responses are never dull. Welcome home, Brains. There's only one requirement to hang out on the edge, is that you open your big brain and close your small mind. Did you bring your thinking caps? It's time to put them on, because the conversation starts I dressed up for you. I know. My bicycle jersey. I know. I was like, look at you. You're looking dapper. (laughs) Well, are you still riding? I am. I am. If you see me at Lake Mary, if you see this shirt at Lake Mary, it's me. All right. Well, I'm going to pull you over. (laughs) Edge with April Mahoney, brains. Uh, This is the place where the conversation is pointed, the guests are sharp, and the responses are never dull. And we love sports and the outdoors. Cycling, one of my favorite things. It's nothing like being on the back of a bicycle, or should I say on top of a bicycle seat, and having that wind blow in your face. There's a certain freedom. And my guest today, David Reed, is also my neighbor here in San Diego, California. We don't live too far apart, and we ride our bikes in the same place. But what David has done is he is not just riding his bike. He is a continental cyclist. I like that. Uh, He's written a book called Uphill Into the Wind about his journey cycling across the United States. I don't know who does that. I'll get the Tour de France and I get exhausted just watching them the first day. So we're going to talk to him about his adventures and the book and how we can be encouraged and motivated to still be vivacious at a certain age. Start out small. But again, keep it moving, because if you don't move it, you're going to lose it. Right, David? That's right. That's right. So welcome to The Edge. Tell us a little bit about you and how you show up in the world, sir. Well, um, (laughs) I'm retired now, but I had a career. uh, I started a landscape architecture firm. Uh, Some of that's related to my past with the environment. Um, But now I'm just enjoying life. I am riding still. Um, this story, Uphill and Into the Wind, uh, happened in 1974. Wow. Uh, and people ask me, why did you wait so long to write this story? Um, I, you know, we did, we were, I was 24 when I did this, and this is an event, you know, writing a story is something young people think of differently. So, uh, when I, you know, Many years later, uh, when my dad passed away, he had a good life, but he had a short little memoir he wrote that helped change World War II, something he had contributed. And I thought, oh, I should write my story. And I started writing. And I got 50 pages in to my earliest childhood memories. And I, huh, it's the bike trip. I have all the journals. I, I have literally seven journals from that trip. Wow. So I kept journals every day and I transcribed all of them. And that became the first draft of the story. Well, it is a telltale for sure of adventure. Uh, tell us some of the things that are inside the pages of the book. What what are some of your, um, I don't know, most harrowing moments? Because you were by yourself, you were with a couple friends? Three of us, yes. Rusty and Susie, whom I uh, saw last week. In fact, I was back East. They live back East. Uh, harrowing moments there. Uh, there are so many, April. 
Mm. Uh, and brains, I have to tell you, um, you know, when you travel on a bicycle, you know, this was 1974. We didn't even wear helmets then. I don't ride a bike without a helmet today. Um, Wait, let me let me ask you, which type of what type of bike was it like? It was a 10 speed. A 10 speed. Wow. It was a 10 speed. It was a steel frame bike. They the guy we bought the bikes from suggested steel frame because we had gear and I had 50 pounds of gear. I had 15 pounds of camera gear. So in the story, in the book, there are these little uh, icons. Uh, they're like a little, you know, the eyeball. And, mm -hmm. uh, and they connect to a place on my website where there are color, all the color photos are. So I had a lot of color photos. But at any rate, um, so where were we? Uh, we, were, we were talking about harrowing moments, but you know, okay, so now you drove... You drove well you did drive your bike about how many miles the total we did was 5420 it was not a straight line across the u.s we, we went south from new jersey we, we started in east orange new jersey okay and right outside of newark and uh went south because it was mid-april and you know it had snowed on april 6th i think that year so we were just after the snow. We thought we better go south to where it's warmer. And and uh, we one of the things we wanted to do was to travel through the national parks. So we uh, we headed south. We spent two or two and a half weeks in Shenandoah National Park, and then uh, we headed through the uh, Cumberland Gap into Kentucky, Missouri, Kansas, Colorado, and we went up the spine of the Rockies. We crossed the Continental Divide, April and Brains. We crossed the, that divide on our bikes 11 times. Not by design, just because we were going to see the national parks and, you know. How long did this adventure take you guys? How long we spent, we left on uh, one day after tax day, I like to say, April 16th. <laughs> and we ended on Labor Day weekend in San Francisco. And um, and then there was the trip home, which is uh, I wanted to keep it a secret because it's a real cliffhanger. Talk about harrowing moments. Okay. But um, but it came out. There was a BuzzFeed video about this a couple of years ago. <laughs> it's in there. The, the trip home. Well, so, OK, so you didn't ride back home, did you? Uh, not on bicycles. <laughs> OK, yeah. So uh, I bet I bet there was, you know, like runners have chafing i bet your butt was chafed huh <laughs> uh, <laughs> actually speed doesn't have a, a a lot of cushion on that seat well what we did is we prepared we had about nine months to prepare for our trip and we brought these leather saddles leather leather seats mm -hmm. and uh we broke them in with neat's foot oil and they told us you know soak them in neat's foot oil and so we did and they were conformed to our butts Really? nicely before the trip but the thing that got to me were the nerves in my hand here and here mm -hmm. after a while uh, they were numb I, I had trouble writing a traveler's check but uh i then i learned to just change my grip more often but harrowing i have you know you know they say a cat has nine lives well right. i'm afraid to count <laughs> i can <laughs> imagine we had so many close calls um the first one was with a Doberman pincher and he almost got me, but, mm -hmm. um, and there were some that were, you know, we had bear encounters. Uh, I had a bear walk, literally walk right over my thighs in the Shenandoah when I was sleeping. 
And I, the moon, the moon was really bright. And the moon all of a sudden went out and I opened my eyes and here's this giant creature just stepping right over me. He wasn't interested in me, wow. but, but I, I, he was close enough to see and smell. <laughs> so you're on this adventure. What uh, sparked this? Why did you guys want to do this? Good question. Um, it was not, so we got the idea in 1973. Um, there was a war going on that many of us did not believe in. There were two people in the White House who were crooks, uh, Nixon and Agnew. And, uh, you know, Agnew had to resign because he was taking bribes. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and Nixon had the Watergate thing. I was very, we were very disenchanted with all that. And with the war, two of my best friends, my two best friends went to Nam. Kevin was lucky. Tommy came back in a body bag. That really affected me. So I, I just wanted out. And that was the inciting incident. You know, we just, and then I saw, I read a story about these people that did a bicycle trip. And I thought, I can do that. You can ride anywhere on your bicycle. Now, we grew up as kids riding, you know, we rode our, I was, I think 12 years old, we rode our bicycles to New York State from New Jersey. I mean, it was only about 35 miles each way, but. Wow, but that's still, that's so, a lot. So the, the physical preparation for this, you know, there's going to be, you got to take breaks to potty, to get water, to have food, to rest. How did you pace yourself? How did you, because it's a, a mindset, it's a mental discipline. It's not just about getting on the back of the bike with a map. You've got to really put your heart and your soul into this. You've got to be dedicated because once you get so far, you know your friends are going to leave you (laughs) if you don't follow the suit well uh, i'll tell you we did a little preparation and in fact um rusty rusty Susie, and i Susie was a little bit younger and we were we did a ride in february in the winter and Susie hit some black ice you know it's ice you can't see i going around a corner and she wiped out and she didn't do too much training after that but and so she was a, she had to walk up the first hill. But after a few days, she was, you know, she came along really well. She became a lioness along this trip. She really did. I bet. Uh, now, as far as riding, we just, you know, we just kind of left it open score. We'd ride until one of us stopped and said, you know what, let's take a break. Uh, we, yeah, eating was a big deal. Um, we there was a, a a point in time where I found out that bicycle riders like us would use up to 6,000 calories a day. So we ate a lot of ice cream and peanut butter also peanut butter and jelly. Um, but you know, we, we would, and, and by the way, the other thing is you're on the road, you spread out. There was a time when uh, I remember looking back and seeing Susie, um, you could see this far you could see a mile away i could see her so she's a mile behind me um but we always managed to stay in tune with each other in fact in fact that's one of the things that um happened to us so when you think about well what what changed you what what you know um so you know you've heard of runners high yes you know the people that run if they run for more than an hour their brain waves enter theta state and it's a different state of being. It's more primal. It's like a heightened state of meditation. 
Mm. Well, we were in theta state all day, every day. We would ride sometimes 12, 14 hours a day. And, um, and we became children of a different consciousness. We were more intuitive. There were times when, uh, at least from my perspective, my bike mates were up ahead, but I, I couldn't see them. But I knew where they were. There were two times this happened where, you know, I had, uh, I'm trying to remember, there was some uh, mechanical failure on my bike and I had, oh yeah, it was, um, it was a flat and I had lost my bicycle pump uh, coming out of the Rockies. And uh, so I had to wait for a, uh, somebody to pick me up and uh, they got me to a bike town, a town with an air pump. And uh, then uh, now I'm like several hours behind my bike mates and heading in towards uh, Grand Teton. But I, they weren't visible from the road, but I knew to stop and where to stop and look for them. So it's kind of like being psychic, you know, wow. it's just from being in theta state all the time. So that was that's one of the, you know, the most powerful things uh, that we experienced on our trip. But this also taught you resilience. It taught you endurance. It taught you discipline, um, camaraderie, compassion. You you were one with nature. I'm sure with you being um, a landscape architect, you probably weren't, I don't know, you weren't doing that at that particular time, but you saw so much beauty as you traveled through all of these natural parks and all that. Did that give you a, a more of a oneness? With the earth? Oh, yeah. So this journey brought me a deep, deep appreciation for the raw beauty of the land. You know, there are sudden and surprising glories of nature out there that just happen. Uh, we were in the Shenandoahs. We had climbed the highest mountain in the Shenandoahs, and it was very quiet, and we're on the top of this mountain. And all of a sudden below us, thousands and thousands of monarch and swallowtail butterflies in these undulating skeins flying north. Now, if there was just one or two, there was no way we could see this. But there were thousands and thousands. And this was just a su complete surprise mm -hmm. just by being out there. You know, the more you're out there, the more you see. And I think overall, I, you know, I developed a far greater reverence for the Earth Mother than I ever had. And I've held that very close to me ever since. And I say the Earth Mother. That's right. Thank you. Yeah, because the Earth is our mother. The parents say, what are you doing? Are you crazy? They paid all this money for you to go to college and here you are on the back of a bicycle going across the country. What did they think about this? Uh, my mother was generally supportive. My father was a little more stoic and and you could tell he wasn't really approving, but uh, what was he going to do? I, I Actually, at the time I had, you know, I I lived at home summers when I was in college, but when I got out of college, I had my own apartment. So they, you know, they, I was already out of the nest, but they were disapproving. And um, <laughs> I, we lived outside so much, you know, we, all the time that the, when we finally got home, the first night home, I couldn't sleep indoors. I went out and slept in the park mm. across the street from our house. And my father found out he was livid. Uh, you know, I just, I kind of felt like this wild thing. 
Yeah, well, you were still in theta. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You, you, you hadn't decompressed. So, uh, look, you had time to complete seven journals. You wrote every day at the end of the day or in the morning about your experience, where you were, what you ate, who you saw, who you talked to, how you were feeling. And you kept these journals with that other 39, 40 pounds of equipment that you had. 50. 50 pounds of equipment. So I'm excited to hear a little bit about the book. Can you read us a little excerpt from, uh, from Uphill Into the Wind? Okay, this is early in the book because I don't want to spoil things for uh, your readers and brains. As we're rounding a long hilltop along the highway, there's a Doberman Pinscher chained up to our right, perhaps 70 yards from the road, who goes absolutely berserk at the sight of us, barking and straining at his steel tether. Somehow bicycles provoke dogs and this one is completely unhinged. I loathe Dobermans. I had one too many scary encounters with them as a child, usually from the other side of a chain link fence. With their partly severed ears pointing sharply upward, they are Gestapo-like and vicious looking, high strung and bred to attack strangers. Twice this one lunges so forcefully that the chain goes taut and his body flies out underneath him, snapping to rigid, rigid tension while his neck stays chained tightly to the post, mm. choking him and dropping him to the ground. What agony. I'm bringing up the rear and have a good vantage point to observe all this. Clearly the animal is alarming. The third time he lunges, the chain snaps. Realizing he's free, he scrambles to his feet, now in full froth and attack mode. My pace quickens, but I haven't reached the crest of the hill yet. I yell up to Rusty. He broke the chain. Get moving. Yeah. Thankfully, this time Susie is well ahead. The top of this black and brown bullet streaks just toward us just above the tall grass. He's moving fast, fast enough to catch me. I'm slowly accelerating, gaining on Rusty, who is cranking fiercely as the mad dog closes in. 40 yards, 30, 20. When he gets to the pavement, the evil creature picks up speed. Mm. My God. He's only a few yards behind me, bent on blood. His eyes focused on me and his biting teeth show from underneath snarling, foaming lips. I'm standing on the pedals, giving it all I've got. But he's so close, I can hear his lungs bellow and his claws on the pavement. Finally, we crest the hill. The maniacal dog is only a few feet behind me, but my 50 pounds of gear has now become an advantage. As the angry beast gets smaller and smaller, the three of us uh, must be doing, I'm sorry, my terror begins to subside as the angry beast gets smaller and smaller. The three of us must be doing 35 miles an hour by now. Once we're out running him, we don't look back for a while, but when we do, he's still there unrelenting. My heart is pounding. He chases us for over a mile before giving up. Dog encounter number one. On the bright side, spring is in full swing. Along the road, we pass dogwoods flowering in white and pink profusion. They're everywhere, at the edge of the woods and in people's yards. Flocks are purple and white carpets in formal regalia. The bulbs, tulips, hyacinths, and daffodils, the big yellow King Alfred types and the small, highly fragrant paper whites, have awakened from their long winter slumber and glory our day with brilliant colors and sweet perfume. 
so soon after opening the cherry blossoms have laid a blanket of delicate pink petals before us. Each breeze sends a new ripple of tinted snow fluttering to the ground, nothing less than an ephemeral prayer laid at the feet of the Earth Mother. Crabapple buds, pink and red, are only starting. They'll dance to a later ritual. Brilliant red cardinals glide in pairs over the road in undulating flight, all a courting. Their song is as resonant as a water whistle. Pepito, Pepito, Pedro, Pedro, Pedro. Oh my God, that was so picturesque. I was there with you. Thank I you. Was, I was worried about you getting that, getting bit by that dog. And the dog was vicious, especially after he had been, you know, yeah. Yeah. by the chain. He was he was hot then. He got his composure. And uh, Dobermans are fast. Those long legs. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Wow. And so you had always had a fear of Dobermans. You had had an encounter with one. As, uh, so I grew up right at the edge of the city. Uh, it was, you know, semi-urban. It's urban now. Mm -hmm. And um Dober nowadays people you know dobermans may be a little different uh but they were they were used as guard dogs and all kinds of things and you know you'd be a little kid walking past a fence and all of a sudden out of nowhere this giant beast come rawr, you know it's pretty scary it is so. really scary it is scary well that is i don't know you just use such beautiful colorful language Thank you. Um, I was there. I could smell the flowers. I could see it. So that's really, really beautiful. So what was the writing process like? You have journals. Um, did you use a writing coach? Uh, what was the process to <laughs> yeah, compile I, all of this to put it into a book? I um, So I, I told you that I, I transcribed the journals. I have them here. Oh, look at all that. All of them. They're, you know, anyway. Wow. So I transcribed all the journals and um, I had about 415 or 20 pages. And uh, someone, I have a neighbor who's a published author. She writes, she's a tennis pro. Um, and she said, you ought to go to the Southern California Writers Conference. So I did and I met people there and you know, um, you go there, they have these, they're called read and critique groups. They're usually mm -hmm. early in the morning, were late at night and they're, you know, they're sort of an ad hoc thing. And um, so the first one I went to, uh, the, the person who was the, the leader of the group, she said, her thing was, you bring your 10 pages and I'll read them, meaning she would read them. Mm -hmm. And I'm not a timid person, but you know, you're in a room with strangers and my heart was in my throat, but she read it and she was very encouraging. Uh, in that, then I found out, you know, you should, I should join the San Diego Writers Inc. And I joined a reading critique group. And so that we met every Tuesday for five years. Uh, now the first, yeah, the first two and a half years, uh, you get to read every other week, but everybody critiques your work. And in the beginning it was, you know, you'd bring paper pages and everyone would critique and then you get the pages back and then you could improve. So I, I, the first two and a half years, I read the book to my group. Now I also had, um, I had three editors. I had a developmental editor, uh, editor. Uh, I can't remember how the lineup goes, but uh, 
copy editor and, and uh, my reading critique group was my best uh, critique. My wife, Carolyn, my wonderful wife was also an ardent critic. She would give me good insight. And then the editors, professional editors, um, <laughs> you know, they tell you, you know, don't hold on to anything. And this was all suggestion on the editor's part. Mm -hmm. She, there was one place she took 5,000 words and, you know, and track changes and she get rid of this. It doesn't move the story forward. So I did, I listened to her wow. and it's like maple syrup, you know, you boil it down and it gets better. It gets better. So, so that was my process. Uh, and this is, I've written professionally in my landscape architecture work, but, but this was different. And uh, I'm really glad I took the time. I, April and Brains, I, um, I did the first draft in two and a half months. Mm. And then I spent six years polishing. Uh, yeah. I'm glad I did. It is. It's like a rusty piece of grandma's silver. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta keep you gotta keep at it keep at it but that's yep. a perfect segue into your architectural design you are one of the landscape architects for one of uh san diego's most precious jewels in balboa park am i correct i have four gardens in balboa park wow. the, uh, the, wow. let's see where do we start the old globe theater complex okay wait 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 i'm writing this down because i'm gonna go by and uh I'm going to the Old Globe tomorrow. My daughter's a costume designer there. Oh, how cool is that? So I want to I want to definitely see it. Okay. So the whole plaza, all the plaza, the wow. radiating pavement and all that. You know, we were on a design team, you know, this big team, but, but we did all the uh, outside stuff, um, the landscape. Um, we actually, there was a lighting designer, so we didn't have to worry about lighting on that. But the, the entire Old Globe Plaza. Uh, we did the uh, Casa, the first one I did was the Casa del Rey Moral Gardens. Oh, I know uh, that is. It is a historic reconstruction. So if you go to the Prado restaurant and you go out on the patio, from the patio out, you know, we did all that. We added a, an accessible route um, along the side. So if you, you know, if you're in a wheelchair, if you're a disabled person, you can get to the lower terrace now. And there's an interpretive exhibit that we did down there. It's the first one in Balboa Park at the time, the first outdoor interpretive exhibit about the story of the gardens. So I recreated what Richard Riqua had done in the 30s. Then there was the Veterans Garden, the Veterans Memorial Garden, which is over on the other side of Park Boulevard, uh, which has not aged well. I'm very disappointed with how the city um, administered construction there. But uh, and then the latest one for us was the Mingay Museum. And uh, the, it was the, out, the outdoors. There was the, the Nicky Gator um, sculpture that the kids climb all over. We, well, you know, we I've, to, I've taken plenty of pictures there, me and my dog. I know, we have too. <laughs> um, they took it off site for the remodel and they had it um, polished up. You know, there was some repair and so on. When it came back, it had to conform with new standards. So... So there was, you know, there's cushioning and, you know, it's, it's treated like a place, place structure. So if a kid climbed to the top and fell off, he falls into that rubber stuff. Wow. Uh, and there was drainage considerate anyway. And then the potent muse is in the back and all the landscape around the, the part of the front and all the south side uh, lighting and all that too. So you that was a thrill to work on. You were really a gift because I think about that brains. I've posted plenty of pictures. I'm, that's a, a staple in uh, San Diego. So many people do their graduation pictures there, their engagement, their retirement. 
It is just the gardens are absolutely magnificent. But it was very disheartening, um, and it's getting better, that the unhoused were using that beautiful, those beautiful gardens. I know. Places it's terrible. I for, mean, for a shelter. But it's getting better. I've been there the other day. It's getting better. And, you know, what are we going to do? But, you know, I guess they wanted to live among beauty and you did provide them beauty. So know that you did, uh, you did well. Thank <laughs> you. you. Well, Thank grasshopper. You. <laughs> and now I can, now I tend to my own garden and my uh, son and daughter-in-law and grandchildren's garden, so. Well, you know, and that's what I started doing. I was thinking about what did I want to do to work out? And so we've done a whole bunch of, remodeling and redecorating around our home and gardening. David, I had no idea. I caught a Charlie horse. <laughs> but I mean, gardening is not for punks because you lift that dirt, that water. Uh, I have these beautiful porcelain uh, planters. It's a lot of exercise in gardening. And I noticed like in the Japanese garden there, um, but the Japanese and Asian cultures a lot, that is a part of their daily practice is to work in the garden. I really didn't, for some reason, think about how much activity there really is. And then the reward on the other end, when you see things blossom, you see yeah. things bloom. You know, I go out now every day in my garden because it's, it's pretty, it's really pretty. And I welcome my plants. I say, good morning. And I can feel a certain energy connecting with them. They feel my carbon dioxide. I feel their oxygen, their leaves. I can tell when they don't feel good. If they're not, they're kind of slumped. If they want water, I can look at my plants in my office now and see that they're so happy because the leaves, it's a, it's a secret language almost. Oh yeah. There's, and there's so much research uh, that's, happened recently about for instance trees in the forest oh, they oh, communicate through their mycorrhizae how you know uh it's pretty amazing in fact that's a lot of the reading i've been doing lately is is that kind of stuff uh finding the mother tree the wild trees uh those kind of books there you know there's a tremendous amount of knowledge that's uh that's hard hard fought and uh you know, there, the woman who wrote Finding the Mother Tree was a worked for the forest industry, and she had to convince them that clear cutting wasn't a good idea. This is up in Canada. Wow. Um, she did it through her research. Well, I'm a tree hugger. Uh, one of you my did. guests years ago said, do you want to try a different meditation? I said, yeah, I'm trying. And I went out and I hugged one of these big giant trees uh, in Yosemite. David, it would it was transformational. I felt the energy. I felt a release. I felt like it was telling me a story. It was, it was weird. It was weird. And now I just put my hands on it and I can feel the energy. I mean, these trees are a hundred years old. Then I think about thousands. Yeah. And I, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think about the tree that burned in Maui. Oh, the banyan tree. Right. But now there is a sense of life. If you look at it, you can tell that it's coming back. That is amazing. That yeah. Is amazing. I started writing about different trees. And I had, uh, because I took my bicycle around uh, the Hawaiian Islands mm. in the back after my bicycle, big bicycle trip. Uh, and I uh, remember that tree. So I was writing about the tree. And then when the fire happened, I had to stop. I just 
but the tree, you're right, it's coming back to life. Um, there is a thing in uh, Japanese, a, a phrase called shinrin-yoku, and it means forest bathing. Mm. And to me, that's, you know, that's when you go out in the forest. And <clears throat> my wife and I did this on our anniversary this year, went up to Mount Laguna, and, mm. you know, the breeze is blowing through the pines and there were still some flowers uh, the late the last of the summer flowers were out and um you know you just go there and listen and it's magical it is magical well you are magical uh and you are such a gift thank you so much for sharing your story and your journals and your book and your travel with me and my friends here on the edge Put that book up real close to your face so that people can see it. I want them to see it. Uphill and Into the Wind, a 1970s bike and hike odyssey from the Garden State to the Golden Gate. And you can get this at your local bookseller. Um, I was blown away by how many bookstores, uh, they'll order it for you. It's also available on those other big places, but not the, you know, the local, I want to support local bookshops. Um, you, you can go to my website, which is uphillandintothewind.com. There are several pages, there are videos. Uh, I'd be thrilled to get uh, April's uh, podcast on, on there. Absolutely. Share it with my friends. It's going to uh, be, yeah, it's going to be there. I'm going to go and get a copy of the book. So I'm hoping that there's a, we'll talk offline, but I, I know oh. there's a couple independent bookstores that we want to support. Oh, Yeah. And if whoever are all your brains out there, if you buy my book and you'd like to get me to sign it, I have a special way to do that. I have a, I have a book plate I've made. This oh. is actually the moon, Venus and Jupiter on the, the first morning of our trip. That's the arrangement. Oh. This is Rusty and Susie and I at a place called uh, Natural Tunnel, Virginia. And so I could send this if you buy the book and you want me to sign it, I'll sign the book plate and send it to you at my compliments. Well, so that, is do that, too. that is a gift from a true adventurer. So now you're just kind of keeping it local. <laughs> you're riding around Lake Murray and around the community. Before we close, though, David, let me ask you one question, because this is a bee in my bonnet. All right. Go ahead. The bike lanes. Okay. I, I support the bike lanes. I want people, I, because I, I ride a bike. I want people to be safe. Number one, wear helmet brains. Okay. Yes, ma'am. No, I, I don't go anywhere with that helmet now. And in my opinion, give the automobile the right of way. Don't try to compete. I saw a guy the other day down uh, in Mission Bay. He got so annoyed with the driver, he kicked the driver's car. I I get it. I get it. But this is a recreational vehicle. You are exercising. You are trying to have fun. Relax. But these bike lanes here in San Diego, um, I don't want to say that they're a waste, but they're underutilized and they're well, everywhere and people don't know how to use them. So I've been pushing the city of San Diego hard to teach us and educate us on how to properly use the bike lanes. People don't know. You go up too far, you can cut off a person. You're, you're back too far, you can get a ticket because you're in the lane. I don't understand how to use them. And some of the designs are flawed. Well, they're trying different things. And I would concur with you that some of them work better than others. 
I know a lot of people in small businesses uh, along 30th Street who lost all their parking. Right. And, you know, we have to we have to uh, allow for both. But there is some wisdom in providing a, 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 a venue, a way to go from one part of town to the other on a bike safely. And I guess they picked 30th Street uh, as one of them. Um, but <clears throat> uh, they're underutilized uh, in part, April, because it's still kind of new. And the planners, as a landscape architect and land planner, we study these things. And, you know, in the future, there'll be more of this. You know, there's going to be there's more more use of mass transit. If you look at the trolley, the trolley is still three quarters empty. Um, and of course, you've got other cities and. You know, people that's, are that's their major form of transportation. That's, you know, they so. you don't use cars and we want to uh, lend a support to climate change, and climate action plan. Yeah. We want to reduce the carbon footprint. We want to reduce the electricity. I mean, the, the gasoline. Um, so I get it. I get it. But to say that, you know, a person is going to stop driving their car and pick up a bicycle. That's I not it. And also, I'm concerned with these motorized bicycles. Either you know, is that considered like a motorcycle? I I I don't know how that works. Can they ride in the bike lane? They have different uh, levels, and I don't know much about it uh, because when I, so I did bike the bay this year again. I did it last year too, which rides over the Coronado Bridge. It's a lot of fun, and there were three thousand people riding. Uh, in fact, there was a group uh, that thrilled me. They're called Black Girls Do Bike. Oh boy! And they were from all over the United States, and they met here uh, for their tenth anniversary thing. And there were, I forget how many hundred of them. Wow! But I came out of the parking garage on my bike, and I stopped, and here are all these women, and they're all cheering, and they're all got the same jerseys, and it was inspiring. Uh, but anyway, uh, so the thing about the electric bikes is. It, Level one and level two electric bikes were allowed on this bike to bay ride. There are others that are complete. I don't know. They're different, I guess. Mm. I, I at first people would ask me, well, don't, don't you think that's terrible? And I said, no, because it gets people out on a bicycle that wouldn't otherwise get out there. The we have to go through a learning curve. You know, the same thing with those rent uh, scooter, those little. Oh, my. Oh, my. I don't even want to talk about how dangerous those things were. I would see people with flip flops or barefoot or, you know, a mother would have their child there, no helmets, going down traffic and expecting the right away. Yeah. And we're going to have a learning curve about that and about the electric bikes, the e-bikes. I see some e-bikes. They're just plowing through and no courtesy. And oh, um, but if it gets people out in nature, I'm supportive um, I, I don't know why this is the thing that gets me is people out in, out in nature and they got the headphones on and you can hear it, you know, outside you can, and I'm sitting here listening to the songbirds. Hey, but, now that, now that's me, but, you know, <laughs> put me some, you know, put me some good, uh, R and B seventies or eighties. And that just intensifies it. I just, but I use my imagination. I was riding down the Coronado strand. And I was listening to some meditation music. And I won't do that again. I literally put myself in a trance, David. I oh. felt like everything was going backwards. And I was going forwards. It was the weirdest thing. 
So again, you have to pay attention. I understand what exactly what you're saying. It's mind blowing and yeah. it's a release, but yeah. it is absolutely wonderful and you're wonderful. So thank you so much for being thank you. on the edge with me and my brains. Brains, I'm going to put all the information on how you can purchase a copy of David's book uh, and hopefully get it signed for you, support your local bookstores, uh, go out and just enjoy yourself. Get a three get a yeah, get a, a, a big uh what you, a, a beach cruiser. But uh go out and have some fun. Enjoy the yeah. fresh air. Thank you so much, David. You're the best. Thank you so much, April. Bless you. Take care.